Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in for an hour of science here on Triple R. We are very happy to have your company. Speaking of company, in the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? It's been a while. I know. It has been a little on? while, actually. I'm not, I don't, I don't know where I've been. Who knows? Who knows what I've been? Chasing glaciers oh, or whatever you do. Like I don't yeah. know. I don't know what I do these days. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Scarlett, good to have you back. Nice to be back, Dr. Shane. It's been a while. You've been traveling. I've been traveling mostly for work, a little bit for pleasure. Oh, you got to do both. I, no, I yeah. think you do. Yeah. I mean, whenever I went to conferences, when I was a full-time researcher, I always first looked at where they were and then looked at the topic. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're doing atomic force microscopy in Basel. <laughs> mm. I need to be at that, that conference. Yeah, It's not like that, folks, really. But um, we do take it into consideration when you're looking at where you want to go for you work. You do a little bit. Well, you have to. You know, there's some locations which, to be fair... Yeah. Pass. Yeah, there was one for me in, uh, I think it was Milwaukee in the middle of winter. And I was just like, yeah, I think that's a hard pass. Yeah, hard pass. One. Yeah, sometimes. Well, it depends, you know. I, I, I've been to some places where I thought, oh, wow, this is a surprise. I didn't know it would be so amazing, but you, you never know. So anyway, we're going to start off with some news, folks, and then uh, we have three amazing guests coming into the studio very soon. I'm actually going to start us off today with a little bit of an announcement of something coming up that people might want to do because whether you celebrate it or not, you know, it's pretty obvious Halloween's about to hit. Uh, what's the date today? I don't know. It's on Tuesday. It's on Tuesday. It's on Tuesday. Right. So, so parties this weekend. Yeah. Go yes. for it. If you're bored and you want to learn and have some fun, uh, Swinburne University is putting something on called Spooktacular Space, Things That Go Bump in the Dark. Now, our good friend of the show, uh, Dr. Sarah Webb from Swinburne, sent this to me yesterday and said, could we promote it? And um, there'll be a panel. It's on Tuesday from 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. at their Hawthorne campus. And we will send the details out on their Twitter feed, but I'm sure you can Google it. Uh, Spectacular space, things that go bump in the dark at Swinburne. And here are some of the event highlights. Um, Panel discussion on mysterious cosmic phenomena in tick uh delectable themed canapes hello <laughs> i like that uh dress up for halloween yeah i'd probably just come as myself um you know dress up scary as enough <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah touche. uh they got giveaways and a costume contest uh, and there's potentially depending on the weather and we're in melbourne so let's be fair here in call of a 30 percent chance there's going to be some stargazing with some of the telescopes they've got there and some networking uh dr sarah webb will be the mc uh, professor matthew bowles will be there as well talking dr yingming wang um who is working on these cool rapidly changing um radio signals that they're seeing there's really cool stuff and a PhD student, Renee Key, who is looking at, and this fascinates me, minuscule black holes. Minuscule black yeah, holes? Yes. There's little Not ones. the massive ones. No, no. They think there might be a lot of little ones out there. Mm. So this is kind of cool. minuscule? No, I can't ask that well, question. We'll get Well, I think minuscule, like, as in probably planet size, you know, like mm. small, small compared right. to, I, to be honest, I'm making that up, I don't yeah. know. But, you know, relative to yeah. hundreds or thousands or millions of solar mass ones, yeah. which are just enormous, you know. Um, so I think that would be cool if they if they start finding the, the ones everywhere. But okay, anyway, so we're folks. not in danger of, like, just walking into them. Yeah, like, <laughs> random minuscule, like, you know, the size of your finger Yeah, or that's something. what I was thinking. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a definite chance. Oh. It could happen. Right. So just watch where you walk oh, there, uh, Scarlett. Okay. <laughs> just watch where you walk. Next time I travel <laughs> through space, I'll, uh, I'll be sure just to watch be out you know, This is where all your bees have gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're wondering where they've gone. They've just said, hey, I'm out of here. You humans are enough for me. We're going to take these minuscule black holes and escape to a, another place. That's what they're doing. Ripping holes in the space-time continuum, yeah. those bees. Yeah. We, we, now, we've got to pull back now to <laughs> being a science show. We're starting to make stuff up. Anyway, folks, if you want to go and see that uh, spectacular space, it's on at Swinburne University this Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Sounds like it would be a blast. So uh, have a look on the web. You'll find the details. Dr. Ailey, you've been looking into some cool stuff for news? I have been looking at some cool stuff for news. I thought we'd uh, thought we'd get a bit interactive here this week, and, and I'd start with something that this, this, this study sounds like rather than... Oh, uh, okay. Telling yeah. you about it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just play a little a little sound here because this is a bit of a sick. I feel like we're doing commercial radio secret sounds. Secret Guess sound. what it is? You know, hang on a second. Uh, here we go. Oh. 
Interesting. Oh, that's my secret sound for the week. Mm. Sounds watery of something. Sounds watery, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like I'm, I'm wanting donuts or hot chips yeah. or something. I feel like it feels like a deep fryer or something. There's some, some woodwind in there <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, maybe, maybe. I can maybe. hear like a glockenspiel. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but actually what this is is tiny kind of millimetre size little, little bubbles escaping from glaciers. Oh, wow. And you think, oh, yeah, that's cool. And so this was, you know, these engineers at uh, I think it was Oregon State University just chucked some hydrophones down there and, like, that's the noise they came back, right? And you think, oh, yeah, bubbles, that's what happens. You kind of hear these things underwater from time to time. But it got them thinking and it, it gave them a bit of a, a thought about, you know, whether these bubbles were actually important because you kind of mm. see them and go, okay. And, you know, why are there bubbles? Basically because glaciers are compressed snow. And so when you compress snow, you, you trap little tiny air bubbles right. in there and, that's why, and so when the the glacier melts, those um, that air is released, and and the air because it's been compressed, the air is actually um, at a much higher pressure right. than um, what is surrounding it, and so they they release quite explosively, which is kind of why it sounds like a deep fryer. Mm. So okay, great bubbles release. Yeah, why why is that important? Right. So this is what this study in uh, Nature Geoscience that came out uh, just in the last month has, has been talking about um, as these bubbles actually being really important for melting glaciers. And this might sound like oh well, maybe it's not such a big deal, but one of the issues that we have when we're trying to predict uh, future changes in sea level rise with climate change um, is that we really don't understand how glaciers melt very well. And glaciers are really important because it's the land ice that we care about melting to know how much sea level rise we're actually going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Sea ice melting doesn't matter. It's just like your ice cube melting in your glass of water. It doesn't actually increase the, the depth, le- the depth yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's, so it's the land ice that's important. And so what these researchers found was that these little explosive bubbles of air that were coming out of the glaciers actually disturb a very thin layer of very cold water at the base of the glacier that basically insulates that glacier from the warm water below, okay? So these bubbles cause turbulence. You think like a spa, right? It's really, really turbulent, right? And so if you're in a hot tub or a spa, that that water's moving around and, and, and flipping around. And so what these little bubbles do is basically cause a little spa underneath the glacier and it allows that warm water, it moves that cold water, uh, cold, cold, thin layer of water. Warm water, uh, cold water. Oh my gosh, I'm all confused. Thin layer of cold the water. The thin layer of cold water just <laughs> under the glacier away and allows yep. the warmer water from below to right. get up into the glacier and, and melt, melt it. it faster. Yeah. And so basically what they've found is that they think this is a really important process for melting glaciers and one that people had not even considered or thought about at all until yeah. this study came about. So this is really, really important because it means it's yet another process that we didn't know about um, that could be one of the reasons why glaciers are melting a bit faster than our mm. models suggest. Wow. Um, and particularly they said that this is a really important process kind of in the top 60 metres of water. Below 60 metres, the pressure of the bubbles and the pressure of the water kind of becomes about even and it's not as explosive, right? So it's 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 matters up near the top bit. But right. they said this might be a really important process for carving, so carving of icebergs off the front of glaciers. So this is when those big pieces of ice yeah, drop, off. drop off and fall down, which is a really important process for glacier melt because, you know, those bits pop off the front particularly big bits, and it allow, allows the big heavy glacier from behind to move forward more quickly and accelerate um, that melting. So, yeah, it's just a kind of, you know, it was all on a hunch um, and it yeah. was all on one of those interesting things that they just kind of found as they were doing field work for other studies. Um, and it may end up being quite an important process for us to to think about when we think about yeah. glaciers melting and and working out how quickly these things will happen as yeah. we move forward. Yeah. No, it's super cool. I remember the first time I heard about the so the um, lubrication effect yeah. of, of the melting below, yep. which allowed things to slide faster. And everyone always thinks it's the melting on the top because mm. that's where mm. warm air is. Mm. But like if you get some melting underneath between the land and and the ice, then things can slip and move and then rivers, little yep. underground rivers or under ice rivers can yeah. start to erode. I, I thought that was amazing. Absolutely. We hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, yeah. So glaciers do new. tend to melt from below rather yeah, than above, yeah, which you just wild. you don't really you don't think, think about. about that no, no, yeah, no, no. It's no, wild no. stuff. Yeah. Great stuff, Ailey. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Scarlett, what do you got? Well, I actually found a new paper this week that just came out on menopause in different animals. This one was particularly focused on chimpanzees. What I didn't actually know before reading this paper was how few animals we knew 
had a post-reproductive life stage in, you know, the female um, of the species. And so that was really interesting. I was wondering if anyone can name some of those species, though, because I I just did have a few primates or something, don't they? No. If you count humans. Well, yeah, that's what humans I mean. Is humans one. and chimpanzees, I'm guessing the other ones are primate. No? No, oh. actually. So chimpanzees are the next primate we know. Yeah. But the others are all marine animals. Is that oh. right? Yeah. So we've got orcas, um, long-finned pilot whales, oh. narwhals, and beluga whales. Wow. Right. So that was really interesting to me. I actually wish I'd gone and seen how they might have collected hormones and that sort of thing from those yeah. species. Because yeah. in this study, they collected urine. From the chimpanzees. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, <laughs> can you do that? A while? Yeah, can you just <laughs> swim Especially behind them? Yeah. You get skewered. <laughs> yeah, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, so that, that's kind of caught my attention straight away. Um, one of the really interesting things, though, is that it seems that it's just this population of chimpanzees in Uganda that are showing uh, the post-reproductive stage in the in the females of um, only of that population whereas they live in a really protected area and then the chimpanzees on kind of the outside of this protected area that are having more interactions with humans they don't seem to be showing this um post-reproductive stage as much in the in the females so what yeah it was um it was really interesting so i i guess the, the interesting thing is that they first went out collected the the urine looked at the hormones and mapped it onto what happens in you know um menopausal people, humans, and uh, had a look at whether they match or not. And they did match really well from the chimpanzees mm. to the humans. So they could show, yeah, these these animals have menopause and also that it's happening around similar times as humans. So I think they say about 30 that um, reproduction begins to decline, but then by 50, um, right. that's when chimpanzees are no longer reproducing. And But then some of these chimpanzees are living to well into their 60s. So they have to have this significant portion of their life that is non-reproductive and showing those sort of hormone changes as well. And so they did show that. But, again, it's just this this one population. So there's a few hypotheses which are interesting to look at as to why any animal has a post-reproductive life stage, uh, why they're useful, why is that evolved. Um, the big one is, like, called this grandmother hypothesis that, you know, the grandmother, like in humans, um, will come and help with, raising kids right. for their daughters. But that can't be the case in these chimpanzees because once the, the females are of a reproductive age, they, they disperse and they go to other areas, whereas the grandmothers stay where they are. Right. So they're actually, that can't be the reason here. So that was really, they went through all these hypotheses. I won't go into all of them because mm. there, was, there was a few. Um, another option is competition between old and young um, right. females in, yep. the, in the group and that, yeah, that the, the older ones stop having babies so that they can, that there's not as much competition between right. the younger ones. Um, so that could be the case. Um, and then one of the other ones that they mentioned, which I found really interesting, is this protection thing. So we do see post-reproductive life stages in animals that are in captivity, like in zoos, um, but it's, like, much more rare in the wild and perhaps that's just because of the threats that they face. And one of the big ones they said was human intervention and environmental mm. change. So it could be a really normal thing that's been happening for a long time, this menopause stage, and it just could have disappeared a bit because of us. Because they're desperate <laughs> to reproduce the, as a population any way they can. Yeah, and yeah. then we've come through and we're, you know, causing deaths in those animals yeah. at a certain age. So is that, is that a stress response kind of thing? Is it <gasps> more, more like that? either we're hunting them yeah. or they're dying earlier. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like they don't have a post-reproductive mm. stage, but we they actually do it. if yeah. we let them live. And that's why mm. this population is really protected from humans and right. other things, and they're actually showing it. Or it could be this this little population is really protected. Yeah. Just, that's fascinating, yeah. I always, thought it was, I always thought it was that scenario where, you know, at a certain age it becomes more health-threatening to, to have children and they're less likely to be healthy beyond that point. So in an evolutionary sense, like if you think of resources and what the gene pool wants to pass on, it wants to do it in the most efficient way possible. So, you know, terminating it is actually kind of smart, you know, like, mm. but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's fascinating stuff. It's fascinating that it's almost like epigenetics in a way where they, they're kind of switching it off. Um, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of cool. And they really struggle to understand why this stage exists. I mean, I'm happy <laughs> yeah. it exists, but... To be able to explain it in animals that aren't human seems to be yeah. actually really challenging. Yeah, orcas. What's going on? <laughs> orcas. Well, I think orcas do have a bit of like 
grandmother <sighs> hypothesis right, right. there. So yep. they are doing a bit of care yeah. and that sort of thing, but maybe not completely. So it is interesting. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Scarlett. Good stuff. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Amy Winship. Amy is a ARC DECRA fellow and is the group leader at the mem- and a member of the Monash BDI Global Change Program and the Health in a Changing World at the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute in the Department of, of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. Amy, did I miss anything? That's a long title, yes. Yes. Co- covered it all. <laughs> Can you do all that in five days or you got to work the weekends? Uh, a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. Uh, now, you're, you're working in this area where I find absolutely fascinating with regards to cancer and that's the effects of chemotherapy on people. And one of the things I think before we start talking about all that, I, I just want you to clarify that the chemotherapy drugs that we use are not tested on women as part of clinical trials. Is that right? Can you talk us through that and why that is? Yeah, I think there's been a bit of a long-standing um, problem in a lot of preclinical and clinical trials where women have actually been excluded from a lot of trials and, and even female uh, cell lines or preclinical models. And often we find that's because there's quite difficult interactions between the hormone levels and the impacts of different drugs that they have on women as compared to men, for example. Right. So we're now... Um, I, I guess a large pillar of our research group is focused on understanding how different cancer therapies impact on females in particular. Mm. And a large portion of this is understanding that the oocytes or eggs stored within the ovary are actually exquisitively sensitive to um, different types of DNA damaging insults. Yep. And yep. chemotherapy acts by damaging the DNA to kill tumour cells. Yeah, yeah. So, Unfortunately, a large um, or well-established off-target effect of a lot of cancer treatments is loss of oocytes or eggs and premature menopause, so Mm. endocrine um, dysfunction for those um, girls and women, as well as infertility. Yeah. I I remember having some discussions a few years back with some um, great colleagues down at the Royal Children's Hospital with regards to consent and, you know, young, um, young women who are, you know, below the age of, of uh, well, you know, under 18, essentially their parents are making decisions with regards to cancer treatment. But, of course, that affects their fertility for their entire lives, presumably. Yeah, absolutely. I guess first and foremost, a large component of this field is understanding that uh, survival from the cancer is the primary goal and mm. we're always aware of that and that is sort of the oncologist's goal. But due to, you know, the the huge advances that the oncological uh, research um, environment globally has been able to achieve in advancing survival rates, um, improving survivors' long-term quality of life has now really risen as an emerging and patient-driven priority. So these girls and women and their families are sort of asking more questions around fertility preservation. Mm. And as you mentioned, in particular for paediatric or or adolescent girls who aren't actually cycling or haven't entered puberty, the fertility preservation techniques that we have, which are largely oocyte or embryo freezing or cryopreservation, sort of like the first step to an IVF cycle, aren't available to those people Mm. because they're not actually cycling yet. So our research is really trying to understand how we could better protect fertility for that cohort of patients as well as, you know, reproductive age women who are cycling and cryopreservation options aren't always available or, um, yeah, for those yeah, yeah. cohorts as well. Now, let's just back up just for a moment because I want to just touch on one of the things you said earlier. So what I don't understand, I mean, this is my physics science brain saying you're testing drugs that are going to be used on a particular cohort, but because that cohort's difficult, we're not going to test the drugs on that cohort. Am I missing something? Yeah, I think this that's... Seems, like, scientifically, this just seems like a, you know, I'm, I'm testing this plane, but I'm only going to test it in water because flying is hard. Yeah, you're 100% right. And this is a large frustration that we have in our lab in particular, but also the field more general. So a really big advance in 2016 in America, the NIH, which is their large Mm. grant funding body that oversees a lot of medical research, actually mandated preclinical and clinical trials include um, females. Um, So that's been a really huge advance. 
but that was only quite recently. And unfortunately, in Australia, there's no such mandates at the moment. So another type of cancer therapy that's really rapidly entered the clinic is separate to chemotherapies, and it's actually based on um, targeting the patient's own immune system. So they're called immunotherapies. So they activate the patient's immune system to target and kill the cancer cells. So they act completely different to chemotherapies. But our um, studies show that they they still activate uh, the immune system and trigger a lot of inflammation throughout the body. And this can also be really damaging to the reproductive tract. So we're quite concerned at the impacts they might have on fertility. And we actually think they might not be any safer than chemo or radiotherapy. Is that right? That's that's phenomenal. And all because of the immune system is one of its natural things to do, of course, is cause inflammation. I mean, we, we see that going wrong in... All sorts of scenarios from, you know, everything from, I guess, celiac disease to severely immune compromised patients where, you know, it goes wild and it starts destroying our organs and so forth. But we're seeing that when we use these targeted immune therapies for cancer. Yeah, yes, we are seeing that. And again, this highlights the problem that none of these immunotherapies had any preclinical or clinical testing in in, uh, in females mm. um, quite often. So we're now really catching up on understanding a lot of the side effects of these drugs, in particular in females. So you mentioned the activation of the immune system and inflammation. We know in females they're more susceptible to autoimmune diseases like celiac diseases or gluten Mm. intolerance, like you mentioned, but other autoimmune diseases. So females are really um, more susceptible to this autoimmunity. Uh, We think they're more susceptible to immunotherapy toxicities. And so understanding the interactions between the the female sex chromosomes, hormones and immune system has now become a really large area of focus for our research research lab. That's that's fascinating to me because I, I think to myself, okay, yeah, I'm just going to put some pieces together here and it's amazing this wasn't dealt with earlier. So many women end up with autoimmune diseases after they have children. Mm. So there's something going on there with, you know, whenever you involve the ovaries, it's the canary in the coal mine problem, right? I mean, there's something going on there that's pretty sophisticated and we're tinkering with the immune system over here, which is a great add-on to cancer treatment. You know, don't get me wrong, it's phenomenal. But those two things collectively, you've got to start thinking, if I start tinkering with the immune system and women are more susceptible to changes to the immune system due to hormonal changes when they have children, something's going on there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that doesn't seem like a big leap that we need to connect these dots. Yeah, you're right. So we are a reproductive biology lab. We're not immunologists, but in Melbourne, we have some of the best immunologists in the world. So we're working with immunologists at Monash and the Peter Doherty Institute. And for the first time, we want to perform uh, RNA sequencing specifically on the immune cells and see whether they're identifying specific self-proteins in the ovary Mm -hmm. that triggers some of this autoimmunity and immunotherapy toxicity. So that would be quite novel to identify a potential source of autoimmunity in females derived from self-peptides or autoantigens, they're called, in the ovary itself. Presumably, once you sort this out, that means that some sort of anti-inflammatory type treatments could be protective for the ovaries? That's the goal. So we are already testing some anti-inflammatories to see if they combat immunotherapy toxicity. Um, And hopefully this um, T-cell sequencing or immune cell sequencing would open up new um, new targets that we could also start to develop as, um, you know, drug treatments to block the inflammation. Because when people receive immunotherapies, we still want their immune system to become activated to kill the tumour cell. Mm. We just don't want the off-target or side effects of the inflammation. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget that the immune system is our friend. Um, but it's also our killer. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people, when they get various illnesses, die because the immune system's gone too far, right? I mean, so as much as it keeps us alive, when it gets out of control, it will it will kill us. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a delicate balance between mm. too little or too much immune uh, reactivity. 
to anything like infection, inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, phenomenal work. I I just think um, it's, you know, we've we've talked about, um, you know, immune therapies for cancer on the show, you know, for decades now, and it's super exciting. But of course, to, to hear that there's that potential damage and an issue with um, with fertility, which, you know, to be fair, I think for a lot of people, when they're having that discussion about essentially the potential of death, some of these things don't come up. You know, like it's it's a secondary concern at that point, but it may be a life-changing concern with survivorship being so high. Yeah, and one of the best things about immunotherapies moving into the clinic so quickly is because they're so effective. Mm-hmm. So we know that more and more people are surviving and that's a great advance from, you know, discovering these yeah. immunotherapies. But catching up on the side effects is sort of tough. the job yeah. of our lab now. Absolutely. So. Now, before you go, of course, congratulations. You're one of the tall poppies for this year for Victoria. What are you going to be doing? Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really exciting and such a huge honour. I think um, you certainly don't do any kind of medical research for things like this, but it is lovely to have the recognition and to meet, um, you know, other groups of researchers from Mm. such diverse fields. I think that's one of the best parts is meeting all the other tall poppies that are doing, you know, making such huge advances in different research fields. And we're so lucky in Australia and Melbourne in particular with um, the research facilities and the the community that we have. Yeah. 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 Are you heading out to some schools to give some talks and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that community engagement is um, something that I'm really passionate about and really enjoy. Luckily at Monash where I work, we've got the John Monash School on site. So we work a lot with them. Um, But we also engage with other community, other schools in the area as well. Fantastic. Kids are so honest and lovely too. (laughs) They'll tell you what they think. Yeah. Uh, They ask great questions. They do. Amy, thanks much for t- coming in and telling us about this. This is something we haven't discussed before on the show, so it's super exciting. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity and having me. You're welcome. Folks, that was Dr. Amy Winship from Monash University. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Our second guest for today is Associate Professor Atul Mahotra, who is a consultant neonatologist and head of the Early Neurodevelopment Clinic at Monash Children's Hospital, also part of Monash University, and the Hudson Institute for Medical Research. Atul, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Uh, congratulations on being one of the tall poppies as well. We just had Amy on a moment ago. That's Great. Thank you. It's a it's an honor and I'm very happy to be here discussing it. Yeah. Now you work in that area of, you know, I suppose we, we all hope we're never going to be in this situation, but where children are born very, very early. So just when when you talk about um preterm or premature birth, what range are we talking about in, yeah. in that? Yeah, so premature birth is any baby who's born before thirty-seven weeks right. of pregnancy. So, you know, before nine months of pregnancy. 10% of babies are born very uh, are born premature in Australia. Okay. So around 30,000 babies every year are born premature. Yeah. What I do work on are those very premature babies, those born before 32 weeks and extremely premature babies born before 28 weeks. So around 3,000 babies are born very early mm-hmm. and around 1,000 babies are born extremely early. Right, right. Those 1,000 babies go on to have a lot of problems, especially long-term problems. So over the last few decades, we've become very good. When I say we, it's the nurses, the doctors, and everyone else looking after these babies in the neonatal intensive care units across Australia have become very adept at keeping them alive. So our survival rates are getting better every decade, but their long-term outcomes is what we're trying to improve. So so when when a baby is born early like that, so Mm. even just a little bit early, but, you know, getting towards the extreme range, what sort of interventions are required? I mean, obviously there's a whole series of their bodily functions that are already working. What what do you have to compensate for? Absolutely. So I'm sure many of your listeners may have a preterm baby in their family or have heard of preterm babies. Most preterm babies are born moderately moderate or late preterm. So they are born between 32 and 36 weeks. And mm-hmm. you would say they are almost like normal term babies. They're just a bit smaller, a bit more immature, but most of their bodily functions are fine. Okay. When babies are born extremely premature, Shane, that's where the trouble becomes. Their lungs are so immature 
their blood vessels in their brain are so immature and fragile that they are at risk of injury by the act of what we do to keep them alive right. of, of intensive care so intensive care means that we need to support their breathing sometimes we need to support their blood pressure their heart function and we also need to support their brain because fragile brains are at risk of bleeding into the brain of risk of not enough blood supply into the brain and that causes a lot of problem mm. so i i suppose my my one of my questions here is when when a baby is younger is there a difference in the formation of some of their organs or are they just smaller so uh, for example are the lungs less sophisticated or are they just or is there just less of them like do, are those sorts of changes still occur yeah excellent science question chain so uh, as you can imagine the human body is very complex and when we start off as a you know embryo slowly it starts to differentiate and mm. i'm going to introduce the word stem cells here a lot of our cells initially have that stem cell property which means that they can differentiate into different organs soon over the next few weeks those cells become kind of differentiated to their end point and they start becoming your heart your lung and so on yep when you're born premature lot of those organs have not uh, sophisticated enough if i can use that term that like the brain hasn't folded enough the brain hasn't developed enough to have those mature uh, interactions and the wiring which is required which happens in babies later on so when you are born premature not only are you underdeveloped in size but in sophistication and so on right. and by the act of intensive care and the act of keeping them alive which is obviously very important they suffer further injury so that's part and parcel of giving them the intensive care to keep them going yeah fascinating now obviously you know when you use the word injury we we have different ways of looking at that i suppose so you know if i get an injury i'm getting a bit older so it takes longer to repair but my body for for the most part can repair certain things and there's some things that you know like my vision and and my what else we got uh kidneys <laughs> that, that you know it is not good at repairing um you know I try to be good don't look at the sun and don't drink too much um but you know we we're, we're not good at repairing some things or as other things our bodies naturally are pretty good at repairing when you talk about these injuries for these infants where where does that sit relative to repair mechanisms uh, ex- you know un unmodified by us like what can they do excellent question so the human body is amazing so we are able to repair most things we are not able to regenerate some things an example is the brain mm-hmm. so the brain hasn't got a very good regenerative capacity and my group's work is mostly on the brain mm-hmm. but lungs are the most common injury these preterm babies have like i said because of the act of supporting them their lungs get injured the good news for babies or families who have these babies is that these lungs generally grow out of their problems so right. they are able to compensate you know you can you can train to be an athlete even if you didn't have lungs if you worked hard enough isn't it same way these lungs over time can actually become very good at things but their brain unfortunately doesn't have that repair mechanism as much as the lungs but having said that the brain has what is called plasticity so over time the brain wiring and how the brain functions can improve so preterm baby with brain injury actually does better as compared mm. to a term baby or myself with a brain injury because they have got that developing capacity which is most you can say rife or most prevalent in those early weeks of gestation yeah that's interesting can what can we do to sort of and this is part of what you're doing in your lab but what can we do to sort of augment that and help them with that process so that as they grow you know into adolescence and adulthood there isn't a deficit caused by by that damage absolutely and that's the area of our work so neonatology is relatively young field as compared to let's say cardiology or something mm. else like that we have been going around for 50 60 years saving these babies lives we are getting better at saving younger and younger babies so we can save babies as young as 22 weeks of gestation wow. like 5 months pregnancy yeah. but Uh, we don't have many tools or interventions to actually improve their brain outcomes or health outcomes in general so we do we have very limited tools or mm. hardly any tools so one of the things which we have been exploring is can we use stem cells or cell therapies now for your listeners i'll just spend one minute very quickly on stem cells stem cells are those cells biological cells which have the capacity to do two things one they can regenerate so multiply on their own but the second thing is differentiate into different organs so they are they are the starting cell and then they can go on to other organ types not all cell therapies are stem cells so sometimes we use cell therapies which do not have stem like properties but they have the property of cell therapies which is the property to be able to repair 
you know uh, f- decrease inflammation uh, do some kinds of mechanisms which are going to help the health of these cells going forward so they protect them from further injury or or encourage them to grow well they don't encourage them to have new cells but at least the cells which are happening on their own they do better long term so that's what we try to harness and what my group does is the neonatal cell therapies group is that we look at various cell types in preclinical models and then we are doing translational work in babies themselves in seeing if we can harness the properties of those cells some of which are stem cells in trying to improve these babies' outcomes. Yeah, that's wild. I think it's important too, to, to, in case people haven't kept up with this, but the whole stem cell scenario is very different to the, what it was even just 10 years ago because we're not using embryonic stem cells now. We're, we're grabbing stem cells from the skin or you're grabbing skin cells and say, hey, you know, you're going back to be a stem cell for a while. We're going to force you back into being a stem cell and then we'll use you for something else. Yeah. Like the sophistication level there is really quite extraordinary now, isn't it? We can grab stem cells from all over, over the body. Absolutely. Uh, and a lot of the cells which we grab are sometimes from gestational tissue like the placenta, right. the cord blood, the cord tissue and so on. In fact, we have a trial where we are using the baby's own cord blood and tissues to harvest and extract and concentrate and give those cells back to them which they wouldn't have if they because they gave birth. Yep. But we also have what you said programmed stem cells so we can grab cells from our blood from our skin from any organ and try to program them to become stem cell like so they are uh, called ipscs or you know mm. induced pluripotent stem cells they are kind of programming those cells to have those stem like properties yeah it's all, it's wild stuff it's amazing i, I think we everyone's aware of the incredible advances in keeping these kids alive but um the long term deficits are you know are really problematic and i remember I was running an event at the Children's Hospital, must have been five, six years ago now, and it was it was on some of this stuff. And, and there was a young kid, um, you know, 12, 15, 12, 13 in the front row. And when I first arrived, I asked him, you know, what brought him and his parents along. And he said, I just want to know if I can catch up to my colleagues. And I mm. thought, wow, it really just cemented the, mm. the reason for doing all this when you have some of these young adolescents who are struggling mm. As a result of, you know, of course, being kept alive, which is amazing, but there, there are some deficits. So, it's all. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today. Uh, good luck, obviously, with this work. It's super important. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You two okay? You yeah, yes, yeah, just you know, sort of like the Grand Prix in here. <laughs> it's like Grand Prix so much science. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. Yeah, it's you know, we've got great. a lot of stuff. Uh, in the studio with us now is Paulo Wasiak. Did I get that right, Paulo? You did. Oh, my God. Are you just being polite? No, 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 that's 100%. <laughs> now, Paula is a senior research technical officer at the Philip Island Nature Parks. Uh, amazing. How do you get that job? I hung around for a long time, so I completed my honours there with the penguins, and then I just never left. Yeah, and that's, um, I just think, you know, there's some jobs like, I, I've got an old buddy of mine, Tanya Hill, who runs the planetarium, and, you know, I've been trying to get rid of her for ages so I can take over that job, but she will not leave. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some amazing science jobs around. Now, first of all, um, let's let's go back a bit with the, so the penguins down at Phillip Island, tell us about them specifically. They're fairy penguins, so. Uh, you can call them fairy penguins. Right. Um, uh, we call them little penguins because okay. their scientific name is Eudipula minor, which means good little diver. Ah, so, okay. yeah. So, we have the world's largest little penguin colony on Phillip Island, and we only have little penguins in Australia. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you if these, these sorts of penguins are elsewhere, um, anywhere in mm. the world. Yeah, so you'll find them in New Zealand as well, okay. although there's a bit of... Um, Interest about the genetics there, that most of the ones in New Zealand are probably genetically different to the ones we have in Australia. Right. So watch this space, whether or not we end up having two different little penguin species or not. We'll right. see. And, and they, don't, they don't interact, presumably, though, like those two species now. Uh, so in New Zealand, there's also a small section where we have the Aussie type. Right. So they can interact there. And there's also the white flippered <laughs> penguin, which is still a little penguin, and they all kind of interact and they can interbreed. So... Interesting, yeah. Interesting. Now, in terms of the uh, numbers down there, because I, I, I'll be honest here on the show, I'm a bit ashamed. I haven't been down to the Phil Island Penguin Colony for in decades. <laughs> uh, last time I was there, you could just wander down onto the beach. There was nothing. Mm, uh, right. <laughs> so, a long time ago, then. Yeah, a long time ago. So a little bit old. Um, <laughs> what What's the status of the sort of, uh, I suppose, the viewing areas and so forth? Like, what's down there now? Mm. So we have very strict viewing areas. Uh, in fact. 
the penguins, only about 10% of the penguins are exposed to any sort of tourism at all. Okay. And only for about an hour. And then after an hour, everything closes up and the penguins are left to their own devices. And you have your set viewing stands now. Uh, and there's also a little bit of an offshoot area where you can go, uh, very, um, exclusive area to sit down on the beach and watch the penguins. Right. But it's very tightly regulated with the visitation and also with, um, the infrastructure and the lighting that we use there is all specialized for the penguins. Right. And how do the, um, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but how do the penguins uh, sort of react to us? Because I know, I remember a few years back having a guest on here from Zoos Victoria and they were measuring hormone levels in monkeys. And when they were, when we were there, their stress hormones would go up. Mm. And do we know how the penguins, do they, do they like us? Do they fear I, us? Or, yeah. <laughs> I think they certainly don't like us such, as such. We're just other big animals around. Yeah. Uh, behaviorally what we see at the penguin parade is if you stick to those pathways mm-hmm. then they just go about their business they've habituated over you know the penguin parade's been going on for a hundred years mm-hmm. now and they've mm-hmm. habituated to the people there and the lights and in fact during the um covid lockdowns we still had to have people go down and switch the lights on and off because oh, the penguins wow. have now habituated to that so as long as you stick to those pathways to those timings they do their normal behavior if you step outside of those areas, then you can have, yeah, um, stressed out penguins. But for overall, and we know through our research that their breeding success is very high, mm. uh, that uh, the population is growing. So that it's a good indicator for the uh, colony. Yeah. I am going to just take a step backwards because I'm just so curious. How do you have, what does a specialised light for a penguin mean? Ah, yes. So for wildlife, you have it on the red spectrum because they can't see it quite as well. But also another thing that's happening, we're switching to the LEDs. And even if you have a red spectrum LED, you still have that blue spike, yeah, like mm. your phone. Yeah, yeah. And we don't actually know what that means for the penguins. We don't know whether that then interferes with them. Uh, so we have uh, the blue spike filters on our lights as well. We did a bit of research into that to see how the lighting should be in order for the penguins to happily walk up the beach. Yeah. And is this why you don't allow people to have phones out during the penguin parade? Yeah, 100%. The light? 100%. And also uh, the flash, uh, even if you know if you have 2,000 people a night, which we can, yeah. Uh, People think they have the flash off and they accidentally don't or, or yeah. anything like that. And, and that can interfere with the penguins for sure. Can, can I go down there, my old school camera? Like my old school video camera? Is that, is that allowed? Or is that <laughs> no, a- unfortunately. No, no photography. No, no, nothing like oh, that. Wow. No. Interesting. Yeah. And let, let's talk about the, the populations because I know there, there was a period where we were pretty concerned about the population down there. What's the status at the moment? Yeah. So, like I said, we're the, now the largest little penguin colony in the world. And that's due to a massive amount of conservation work. So, what people might not have realised is that back in the 80s, we thought we were going to lose the penguins before the year 2000. The modelling showed right. that by the year 2000, we wouldn't have penguins left. The numbers were down to about um, 12,000 individuals. And then it was through this really aggressive conservation action that was put in place, research-led conservation action, that now means we have this um, population that has increased dramatically and is such a big stronghold for the species. And, and what does that mean, like in terms of that conservation action? I mean, wh- what are you? What sort of things are you preventing from impacting the population? Mm. So we have reduced many of the terrestrial threats, particularly that people have put on the penguins. So right. where you go see the penguins is called the Sumland Peninsula. It used to be a housing estate. Ninth, in the 1920s, that entire colony was subdivided into seven over 700 blocks and built right. upon. And it was this um, buyback scheme that was put in place by the state government at the time that ended up um, saving that entire habitat so people who lived there on the Sumland Peninsula could only sell their house back to the government Right. That was then removed. The houses were then removed, and then the area was rehabilitated into penguin habitat. Another big thing we did was eradicate foxes. We're an island, yeah, we can do that. And in 2017, we were declared officially fox-free, and that is just you go down to the island and you see the wildlife thriving, and it is due to this amazing conservation work that we've done. Yeah. What about cats? Mm. I mean, I love cats, but I know I've got two cats, one of my cats wouldn't know a penguin if it came up and whacked it on the back of her head with a flipper. The other cat, it would drag that penguin in by the by the foot back mm. to me proudly and say, hey, look at what I got. Yeah, <laughs> so we now have a 24-hour cat containment on the island, which is right. amazing, really good for all of our wildlife. Uh, we do have um, feral cat control programs as well. We know from diet studies that it appears so cats don't eat too many penguins on the island, perhaps some chicks. Uh, 
because they have so many other things to eat. <laughs> Elsewhere, cats are certainly a bigger problem. But we're finding for the penguins themselves, cats aren't the major issue. Yeah. Now, Paula, give us a, a, an idea of your your sort of day or night as it might be down there. I mean, are you just down there snuggling up with these penguins? I mean, what <laughs> I, I always I always hear about researchers who are working with like pandas, and I think they're just snuggling the pandas. That's what's you know, happening. I should show you the scars on my hair. <laughs> they are not snuggly at all. Right. <laughs> but my day, so I do much of the data collection for all of our research programs. So it can yep. be. Um, going out and checking burrows, monitoring. We, we um, In our study sites, we microchip our penguins, so we know the individuals and we see who's with who and, you know, when they swap over, what burrows they breed in, how successful they are with their breeding. Uh, we're smack bang in the middle of the breeding season at the moment, right. so there's a lot of weighing chicks. I like to call myself a professional penguin poo collector. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of data in poo. Uh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it it's is amazing. amazing. Yeah. I'm really excited by it. So we use that for diet studies, for data analysis, so we can see over the past 24 hours species-specific and how much they've been eating. I also take a lot of penguin blood samples for um, stable isotope analysis. I just take the samples. I don't do the analyses. Uh Again, for diet studies as well. Yeah. So you talked about the um, the amazing buyback scheme and preserving the penguin habitat on land. Mm. What about in the ocean? Yeah. Because obviously that's where they get their food and everything from. So so how has that been rehabilitated over the years, or has it? Is that in under threat? Mm. So. Great question because we see penguins on land and we can do a lot to save them on land. The ocean's another thing, yeah. They spend about 80% of their lives in the ocean. So what we do, we've had a very long-running um, program where we look at how they use the ocean, where they forage, how they forage, and that's what we're doing. We're collecting that information in case anything was then to happen. Say they, someone decided to do a big industrial fishing activity right off the coast. We go, well, we've got decades worth of data here to go. Maybe that's not a great idea. So we have a lot of very um, fine-scale data on that now. Yeah. Now, sorry, I got to I got to come back to poo. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I find this fascinating because it's such a you know it's like you, you get this sort of view into the microbiome of of the animal, which is incredible. So, a delicate, a semi delicate question: How fresh does <laughs> this have to be to be viable to use in the lab? Yeah, you know what? A, a lot of my time is spent thinking about collecting fresh poo. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, the way I do it, we it's and it's very, very simple. You know, I had a student out with me during the week going, you know, from all the high-tech stuff we do, this is amazing, just how simple it is. I just get cardboard, put it in the penguin burrow entrance, and they deposit their poo. Oh. And then I have to make sure, you know, first thing the next morning that I get the freshest, the, the most right. wet yeah. <laughs> poo, yeah. stick it in some alcohol, stick it in the freezer, and then wait for it to get it analysed. Yeah. See, I love that because I think people that, you know, Scarlett's looking at me like, why are you asking that question? But, you know, this is this is the, the essence of, you know, essentially, you, you know, as humans, we don't think about this very often when we go and go to a path lab and we, we do a sample. If someone said, oh, we're going to leave it out on the road for a week before we send it to the lab, we'd be outraged. <laughs> Like, how can you get information from that? But but it matters, doesn't it? Because things start to change. Very, but that's right. Sausage degrade. The DNA sausage degrade, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually, yeah, going to come back to this number of 10%, that you said 10% of penguins are having interactions a bit with humans. How do you, are you controlling for that or is that just a fact that you know? And where are all these other penguins that aren't part of that? Because the pen, I just thought they were all in the penguin parade and I was watching all of them, but obviously 90% of them are hiding. Well, that's it. Uh, I think a lot of people think that it's just the penguin parade, but the penguin parade is just the start of that colony. That entire Sumlin's Peninsula, that if you know the area spans right back to the Nobbies, that's all penguins. That's all penguins. So it's just that small amount that is exposed to any sort of tourism. Yeah, they're the active penguins. They're the ones that they've been trained to put on the show for you, Scarlett. That's right. <laughs> well, it's a bit of self-selection for the penguins because yeah. they could move somewhere else, but they have chosen not to. Is that correct? Well, that's it. They, look, they once they fledge from a location, they are more likely to come back there. Uh, but they do have that choice that if they are not comfortable then they can move. Once they start breeding in an area, then we know they'll come back over and over and over again. But, no, they do have that choice to move elsewhere. Slip them some extra sardines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come around here to St Kilda Beach. We've got some good stuff down there. Well, the ones at St Kilda were originally from Phillip Island. Yeah. They're an offshoot. That, yeah. and, and I wonder about those. They're like, look, hey, this bay, it's only 20 metres deep. There's fish everywhere, mackerel coming. It's a party. Well, that's it. And we know that they are... 
a bit on the larger side when you Is compare right? them to the Phillip Island penguins because they've got a cruisy. They've got yeah. everything right there. And there's no commercial fishing in the bay anymore no, either. So presumably, I mean, I know that's a relatively recent change, but presumably that's up the stocks for them a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, right. Look, we're, we're going to have to go in a moment, Paula, but I think in terms of what this says for international conservation, I mean, this, this seems to be like a, a template case where you can say, well, look, this was a colony that was going to collapse, and we've done it. Mm. I mean, presumably yes. that's big news. Yes, 100%. So so I recently came back from the International Penguin Conference. Yes, that is a real thing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and penguins are in decline worldwide. Yeah. Well, 13 out of the 18 penguin species are declining rapidly. We're going to be losing penguins. And we are really a flagship colony to go, look, if you do this aggressive conservation mm. work, this is what can happen. And yeah. we are very lucky, yes, because we have this tourism venture and it's because of that that there's a lot of investment put into that. And a big thank you to everyone who does visit the Penguin Parade yeah. because your money goes into our conservation work and yeah. that is why we can thrive. Yeah, it's fantastic. I have this image one day of uh, the word getting out to the other penguin colonies around the world and all of a sudden you're just going to have this emperor penguin turn up at Phil Island one day. <laughs> That'll be the dream. <laughs> Paula, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. This is fascinating and I will have to get my butt down there to Phil Island because it's been way too many years since I've, I've been there and I think penguins are just fascinating creatures. So well, let me know when you come down. <laughs> yeah, will do. Thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with that ongoing work. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Scarlett, thanks for coming in. What have you got planned for the next week? What have I got planned? Well, we're actually starting the bee season now, yeah. so the weather's getting good enough that we can, yeah, start to plan a few things, go look at our native bees. Our honeybees are out and about at yep. the moment too, so that will be the next few months for me at least. Fantastic. I, I love the fact that you come in and talk about bees because all my knowledge before that was from the bee movie. Yeah, no, I, I don't so, think it's quite well, accurate either. Yeah. I've yeah. never seen it. I don't think I could oh, see it. Oh, you've got to watch it. <laughs> we need to we need to pull that movie apart on air after you've seen it. Do it. That's your homework. review time. <laughs> That'd be great. Ailey, good to see you again. Thank um, you, Shane. Keep thanks. up the good work in climatology. Important space. Folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We have a particularly big show coming up next week as well with uh, even more guests. They're all from Brazil next week. So this is a special, a special edition, a Brazil edition. Um, one of our colleagues uh, out there at Monash has managed to grab all her Brazilian friends together for one show. So that's going to be super cool. Uh, we're going to hear about that. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening. Remember, science is everywhere and have a fabulous weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.